Do be seated. Uh, thanks to Simon and uh, our team here on my right for leading us through the first part of the service. If you have your Bible, please do open with me uh, to Acts chapter 4, uh, the passage that Philip read for us earlier. It's going to be helpful to have that before you as we look down through it. A couple of Saturdays ago, I was speaking at an event for Baptist youth uh, on the subject of intentional family discipleship. After the main session uh, that I did, there were two workshops that you could attend, one on discipling younger kids and then one on discipling teenagers. I sort of thought, well, I'm in the throes of the younger kids section. I'll probably be moving in, God willing, in the future to the uh, discipling teenagers section. So I decided to sit in and attend the workshop on discipling teenagers as a Christian dad. The pastor of Ballycrocken Baptist, Neil Watson, led that session, and his opening story is one that I don't think I'll ever forget. He spoke of a friend that he grew up with, who was raised in a good local church, but his friend later on in life walked away from the faith and from the church completely. Neil had the opportunity to ask this friend uh, later on why he walked away. And his friend said to him, Neil, with respect to Christianity, growing up, I saw it in the church, but I never saw it at home. And that sent a chill down my spine. I said to myself, whatever happens in our own kids' future, I never want that to be part of our story. I begin with this story because it introduces to us the main challenge of the passage we're looking at this evening. That is a challenge to be an authentic Christian, not just on a Sunday at church, but on every day of your life and in every sphere that you move around in as part of your life. You see, when what, is, when what we are in public doesn't match what we are in private, we have what we could call an authenticity problem. Now, if you want to play dress up, you want to act here, um, I would say down the street there's the opera house, and uh, May McFetridge would be glad of the company. Here, in church, we're called to be real, not to pretend in front of each other, not to act or play dress up, we're called to be real, real in our love for the Lord, real in our commitment to each other, real with our struggles, real in our Christian witness. This passage calls us to be authentic. And the, com the passage communicates this challenge to us in two main chunks. First, we're presented with something real in chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. We're given a picture of authentic Christian community. Then, the second chunk, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, we're given something fake, a counterfeit, a couple whose private lives don't reflect what they're presenting in public in church. And what we're going to just do is walk down through the two scenes, moving through them pretty quickly, and then at the end I'm going to draw out some lessons that we learn from this section that call us 
to a renewed commitment to authentic Christianity. So let's look, first of all, at chapter 4, 32 to 37, something real, the character of the early Christian community. Last week, we saw the apostles facing threat at the end of chapter 4, verses 27 down to 31. They were facing threats and intimidation from the religious leaders of the day who didn't want them preaching in Jesus' name. The apostles and others gathered together in the midst of the threats and the intimidation, and at the end of the narrative, in verse 32, we read that when they had prayed, they gathered to pray. When they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now, you're you're to pay attention to that fresh experience of the infilling of the Holy Spirit, because what Luke proceeds to do now in verses 32 to 37, our passage, is he points out the characteristics of this Spirit-filled community. Do you remember how he did that back in chapter 2, when after Pentecost and that initial outpouring of the Spirit, in chapter 2, verses 42 down to 47, you got another little example of the spirit the characteristics of the Spirit-filled community. Well, he's doing something like that again. And here, in verses 32 to 37 of chapter 4, he points out three characteristics of this Spirit-filled community. We want to be like this. The first characteristic is unity. Verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That's a really key phrase. One heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. United in Christ, the early believers find themselves united as a family together. I remember about a year ago praying when I was in the States, uh, praying with a a Christian friend, uh, that a guy I'd just met, became a good friend now. And we sat over a meal, and uh, he prayed for the meal, and I remember what he prayed. He thanked God, saying that though we had just met as Christians, we had more in common as brothers in Christ than with any non-Christian we've known for years. And I really loved the way he prayed, and I thought that's true. Because as Christians, though we had just met, we share more in common than with family members who I've known all my life but who are not Christians. You see, as Christians, we share the same goal. We are trying to bring all of our lives continually under the lordship of Christ and to live not for ourselves but for him. We share the same mission. We declare the glories of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We share the same Holy Spirit who dwells us together and how we have enjoyed that as we've gathered around the Lord's table. There's one of those moments where in eating the bread and drinking the cup, we are united together very specially as the Spirit dwells among us. This unity led the believers in the early church, not just to see their resources as their own, as sort of privatized commodities. They saw their resources as things that could be used for the good of the whole community. Remember when we lived in Madagascar, I bought a bike. um, I drove it out of the... uh, You bought the bike, and then you had to give it back to the guy you bought it with so that he could fix it up ready for you to drive out of the shop. I did that. I came back later on, drove it out of the shop, didn't get 100 meters before both tires popped on it. 
So then he told me, you need to get more expensive tubes for the inside of it. So I paid more money, got them tubes. Guy saw me coming. But eventually we got it sorted. And uh, when I got the bike back, I realized very, very quickly that in buying the bike in this communal culture we were in, it wasn't just my bike for me. I bought it for the village. And so quite often I couldn't use the bike because it was out with someone else. Um, And that was just the way the people in our village there thought. They weren't as clothed in our our individualism. But it was kind of, you know, like, we're together. It's great that you've got us a bike. (laughs) Unity that flows out through generosity is one of the marks of a spirit-filled church. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul urged the believers to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's a lovely phrase, maintain the unity that the Spirit has wrought among you. The Spirit brings the unity, now it's our call to maintain it, to walk in it, to exemplify it, to live it out. We are to make corporate unity here at Great Vic a personal priority. That is something that characterized this spirit-filled community. The second thing that characterized them then is power, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Another mark of a spirit-filled community is that there is a sense of power, a sense of God's spirit that accompanies the ministry of the word. The apostles were ministering the word, the testifying to the powerful resurrection of Christ and Christ and their ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit-empowered ministry of the Word grows a Christian community in grace. Great grace was upon them all. You see, preaching is a means of grace where God supernaturally takes up the preacher, his study, his work, his sermon notes, and he draws it all together and speaks through his word to his people. Preaching is not just information transfer from the preacher to the brains of the congregation. There's something much more going on. The preacher is preaching the word of God with a goal of having you understand it in your minds, but You don't want to stop there. The understanding of the mind is to grip the heart, to stir the affections, to move the person's soul to want to respond to transformation. When you pray for the preaching of the Word at Great Vic, pray for the Spirit to accompany the preaching of the Word with great power, power to transform our lives. You used to call that unction. When God's word would come and there would be a sense that God's spirit is with the preacher and that there's there's a sense of God about it. The preacher can't manufacture it. The congregation can't manufacture it. We pray for it, that God would accompany the ministry of the word with great power so that it brings great grace in the community. Well, the third characteristic of this spirit-filled community then is similar to the first, but It's more specific, generosity, verses 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each one as any had need. Where we've emphasized unity and we've emphasized power, now we see how more clearly this unity and power was manifested with this spirit of generosity. Now, this wasn't an early form of Christian communism or anything like that. This was how grace was displayed among the community, blessed by the power of God's Word and God's Spirit. This was radical generosity. The language of laying their financial gifts at the feet of the apostles speaks of people giving generously to the church family so that resources could be stewarded well and that needs could be met and that the community would be blessed. The Holy Spirit stirred up sacrificial generosity among the believers just as He has always done throughout Scripture. If you look carefully as you read through the Old Testament, you see that this is continually one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. We read of this happening in Exodus chapter 12 in the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. God anointed a man called Bezalel and filled him with the Holy Spirit so that he was gifted and able to do all the artistic crafts that were needed to bring together the tabernacle. He asked for the people to give, contribute different resources that they had so that the materials for the tabernacle could all be brought together. And we read that God stirred the people's hearts by the Spirit so much that in the end they had to be told, stop giving. There's too much. It's building up. We read that when the tabernacle was being built in the book of Haggai, when Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, were encouraging the people to keep giving themselves to the work of rebuilding the temple, we read that God stirred up the people by the Spirit so that they were committed to the work. I can't help but think of our own building project. Our greatest need is for the Spirit to do a powerful work in our hearts and in the hearts of others looking on. We need the Holy Spirit to stir us, to equip us, so that we would be generous and that we would prov- He would provide everything we need. How was the work of the temple to be accomplished? Well, Zechariah said it very clearly in chapter 4, verse 6, when he was encouraging people like Zerubbabel commissioned to build a temple. He said, look, it's not going to be by your might. It's not going to be even by your power ultimately. It will be by my Spirit, says the Lord. That's how any great work for God is done, by the Spirit of God, stirring the people of God, moving the hearts of individuals and communities so that the resources for the work of God are not lacking. Well, there's three characteristics of the real deal, an authentic, Spirit-filled community. But just before we move on from that, in the final part of this first section, we're moved from the general characteristics of the community now to focus on a specific individual, a specific example of the kind of person that made up this spirit-filled community. This is really helpful because communities are not just faceless communities, they're communities of individuals. It was spirit-filled individual Christians that made up the community of the church then and now. And in verse 36, we get one spirit-filled individual, a man named Joseph from Cyprus. He was one of those, we're told, who sold a field, and he used the proceeds to give generously to the community. Now, we're not told lots about Joseph We'll learn more about him later in this book, but one thing we are told 
is that the apostles give him a nickname. The encourager, son of encouragement. It means the encourager. And notice we're told here that it was the apostles who gave him this name. They called him encourager. Why? It must be because of what they saw in him. They watched him in the early church community. They saw Barnabas. They saw the way he interacted with people. They saw the way he was always outward looking. They saw something in him that made him say, this guy is always encouraging people. He's an encouragement to us, and he's an encouragement to this whole community. And they said, let's call him Barnabas, the encourager. I wonder what nickname would stick to you in this community. The early church community here was united, powerful, and generous. This community with people like Barnabas, this was the real deal. Spirit-filled community, authentic Christians. That's what authentic, spirit-filled Christianity looks like in a community. But now seeing that, we're ready for the contrast. Instead of something real, we're ready now to move into chapter 5, 1 to 11, and see something counterfeit. A couple whose private lives do not reflect what they were presenting in public. You see, where there's the real, there'll always be the counterfeit. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, we meet this couple called Ananias and Sapphira. Like Barnabas, they sell a piece of property. They decide to give the proceeds to the local church. Sounds good, but we learn quickly that there was actually something deceptive in the way they went about this. They presented the gift of their money to the apostles and made it look like their gift was the full amount they paid for the field, but it wasn't the full amount. In verse 2, we read that they conspired together to hold back something of the money for themselves. It seemed they wanted the reputation for being a Barnabas without the true sacrifice involved. Peter, it seems with insight from the Holy Spirit, sees through the deception and he speaks to Ananias boldly in verse 3, saying, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this, de- contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter's saying, Ananias, look, the money you got for the field, it was yours. You could have been transparent about this. You could have kept back some of that money for yourself and presented the rest to the church and been honest about it. Look, we all have needs to meet. You could have done that. But instead, you've contrived to lie in your heart and to lie to the church and to lie to God to make yourself look better than what the reality is. Your problem here is you're trying to make yourself look more godly than you actually are in front of people. It's as if he's saying, Ananias, do you think we're playing games here? Do you not realize that God is in this community? You haven't lied 
to man in lying to the Holy Spirit, but you've lied to God. And there's one of our key texts in the New Testament that actually speaks of the divine personhood of the Holy Spirit. You've lied to the Holy Spirit in one breath. You've lied to God. And as this denunciation came out of Peter's mouth, we read in verse 5 that Ananias fell down and breathed his last. God struck Ananias down for the sin of hypocrisy. And fear fell upon the whole community. They became conscious of the holiness of God. Now, you think that might be the end of the narrative, but it's not. We read in verse 7 that a few hours later, the wife of Ananias, the wife Sapphira, comes into the presence of the gathering, and she doesn't have a clue what's happened with her husband. Peter graciously gives her a chance to be honest in verse 8. Tell me, did you sell, sell the field for this amount of money you've given to us? And she says, yes, of course we did. And look at Peter's response in verse 9. How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out. And in verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. They came and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And then we read, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That's verses 10 and 11. So that's the counterfeit. Over against authenticity, you have people who are just playing dress up in church. If they had children, they could have said, yeah, we saw it in church, but we never saw it at home. Now, what are we to learn from this shocking account in Acts chapter 5. Let's draw four lessons out of it as we conclude. Lesson one, an experience of spiritual renewal in a church doesn't guarantee an absence of sin in the community. In fact, when things are going well in a community and spiritual, renew, spiritual renewal is being experienced, we need to be extra vigilant because Satan will want to find a way in to wreck the community and the unity. He will work on individuals so that they get jealous or disgruntled or start to not like each other, start to greet each other. Sin is like water. It finds cracks and goes through them. Look at how Peter addressed Ananias in verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. There is balance there. Just like there was in Eden. Satan prompts and sets up the sin. Inspires it, if you will. But humans are held responsible for the sin. Satan fills Ananias' heart. But he's held accountable before God for it. The wider context in Acts here actually shows us how Satan actively but subtly tries to wreck churches. I wonder, did you notice it? If you step back for a moment, think 
How was Satan subtly trying to hinder the progress of the gospel in the life of the early church community in chapter 4? Through threats, intimidation, and persecution. External pressure. How does the pressure take a form here in chapter 5 from Satan? Internal issues. He inspires sin in the community so that there will be hypocrisy, people who are being fake with one another. That's what was happening in chapter 5. That's how Satan was subtly trying to wreck the community. And then in chapter 6, he subtly tries to distract the apostles from their main thing, the preaching of the word and prayer, by giving them lots of administrative tasks to do. I'll give them, instead of giving them great things, I'll give them good things. And they'll get so busy running after all their administration that they won't have time to minister the word. That's how I'll get the community. And you step back and you see chapter 4, Satan subtly at work trying to wreck the community from external pressures. In chapter 5, from internal sin. In chapter 6, from a variety of distractions. Boy, it's subtle, isn't it? In 1 Peter 5, 8, the same Peter warns us as a church, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. So there's lesson one from this account. An experience of spiritual renewal in a church doesn't guarantee an absence of sin in the community. Let's make sure we're not the ones giving Satan a foothold. Lesson two, the main issue in this text with Ananias and Sapphira is not that they held back some money. Their main issue is that they were trying to look more godly than they actually were. Their private lives didn't match the reality of what they presented in public. Listen, they turned it on on a Sunday. When in reality, there was no real substance, truth in their hearts. They cared more ultimately about what people thought of them and what people saw in them than about what God saw in them. Peter said to them, you didn't have to pretend. You could have been real. And I want us all to hear that this evening. We don't have to pretend we can be real. We don't have to pretend that we have it all together. We can be real. We don't want to play the pretend game here at Great Vic. We want to be an authentic community where we are appropriately real with each other, able to be free enough to say, yeah, I am struggling at the moment with those who we trust and who are close to us. Able to say in a prayer meeting, would you pray for me? I'm really struggling to read my Bible. It's a sin to be a hypocrite, and God hates our hypocrisy. Jesus reserved his strongest rebukes in the Gospels for hypocrites. And when God struck down Ananias and Sapphira, he showed clearly what he thought of their sham. Lesson three. Often in times of spiritual renewal, when God's power and presence are at work in a community, judgment may be manifested with more severity than in times of decay. 
We shouldn't really be amazed that God judged Ananias and Sapphira in this way, struck them down immediately in that moment. We shouldn't be amazed at that. We should actually be amazed that we don't see more of this than we do. When God acts in temporal judgment in a way that's swift and severe, lessons are learned and a church is purified. This happens. This happens even today. When people get in the way of a great work of God through their hypocrisy, God can deal with them. There are a few instances in Scripture where we see this kind of thing happening. Those of you who know your Old Testament will think probably straight away of Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu who offered unauthorized fire, and God struck them down. You might think of Joshua chapter 7 and Achan's sin when he hid some of the devoted goods, the plunder. It was all supposed to be offered unto the Lord. And he said, I saw this lovely cloak from Babylon and I thought I wanted that. And I took about 2,000 shekels and I hid it in my tent. And God struck him and his family down. These instances remind us that we may be able to deceive people, but God sees the reality of our lives. Don't play the pretend game with God. What's striking here is in verse 11 of the text, we meet the word church for the first time in the book of Acts. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I think we're to see something here that God, our jealous God, was in love protecting his church from the foothold that this deceptive couple were giving to Satan. If the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira had been allowed to take hold, hypocrisy could have festered and rotted the core of that church from the inside. This account teaches us how seriously we should take sin in the camp. We're not messing around. We should practice church discipline when there are open sins that everyone knows about but no one addresses. We always do that with the goal of seeking to see the sinner restored to the community and to God. God takes hypocrisy deadly seriously, and I just want to warn anyone here messing around with this kind of thing, be careful that you don't attract the wrath of a holy God. Fourth lesson, in light of all of this, God calls us to live authentic, real Christian lives, not just on a Sunday at church, but in every area of life. How can we be real? Will we live in the goodness of the gospel of grace? You see, when you know the gospel, that our God sees the reality of what's in our hearts, and yet in love he gave us his son to save us. He sees the worst of us, and yet while we were sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. He knows the worst of us, so we can be real before God. And we can be appropriately real with each other. He's given Jesus to us to set us free from our corruption and our hypocrisy. In him we can be open. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we still struggle. But we're not ultimately defined by that anymore. God has forgiven us, washed us, and is in the process of remaking us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to pretend 
anymore. Because we can walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with with one another now in an authentic way. We don't have to pretend we've got it all together because all of us know we don't have it all together. You don't get dressed up and put on your Sunday best to go to church and put on a nice smile and then pretend that you're holier than thou. Be real. You can wear a suit and be real. You can dress down and be real. But don't pretend. You know, I spoke to someone once who's walked away from the church and they said to me, I saw people walking into the church with big hats on and all this and they just looked as if they owned the place and they were as crooked as could be. I just thought, that's awful. It's awful. We are broken sinners. But we have a wonderful Savior. He knows the depths of our heart and yet He loves us. He loves us so much that we can be real with Him and therefore we can be set free to be real with each other. As broken sinners, we find everything in common by coming to the fountain where we meet. We find washing, healing, and renewal in Christ. From that place of being real, we encourage one another to keep going. We find unity in our brokenness. We know there's power and grace as the Word is at work among us, and we seek to be kind and generous as we seek to build one another up. We're not the grand opera house across the road full of May McFetridges. We're the church. The church of Jesus Christ. Broken people being saved by grace. The grace that has caused our hearts to fear is the same grace that takes the fear away. The same God who breaks us in our sinfulness is the God who takes the brokenness away. He sets us free. He says, you can be real with me and you can be real with others. You know, authenticity is one of the biggest values today in our culture. Be real. That is driving a young generation coming up behind us. Be real. Be real. Surely in the church, that generation can find the freedom to be really real. Coming to the Christ who knows everything about them and invites them to come to him to find life. So as we look at this whole section here, we see on one side the spiritual characteristics of the early church community filled with the Spirit. And then we see the characteristics of this counterfeit. You have to ask yourself in light of this text this evening, where are you? What camp are you in? And I would encourage you just to open your heart this evening again to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to be real appropriately real before you and appropriately real in church, never pretending to be more godly than I am, but just being honest about where I'm at. And may the Lord help us to do this. Let's pray. Father, there's some things in this section this evening that are quite shocking. You are holy And you know our hearts. 
And there are those moments where in Scripture we see you just coming with judgment to strike down the sinner. And yet, think of the many other times in Scripture where we see you bearing sin patiently. We see you, Father, sending your Son to save us from our hypocrisy. And instead of being struck down as we each deserve, we are preserved by grace, sheltered by Christ, forgiven over and over again, and called to walk before you with integrity and humility and authenticity. So, Lord, help us to reflect on this text rightly this evening. We're needed to put your fear into our community and into our hearts. Because, Lord, we see so often in those times of revival and spiritual renewal in communities, the church is struck with the fear of God. And that causes them to run to the cross more quickly and to live more closely and in more dependence on Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone here this evening and they're feeling afresh that sense of the fear of God in their hearts, oh Lord, thank you that you've given us a place of shelter to run to, and that is your Son. He's our shield from the wrath of God. And we thank you that we have a resting place in him. For Lord, each of us, we know that at times we project a self, we project a godliness that perhaps is not warranted because we want people to think well of us. We're sorry for that. You see the reality, and we run again to Christ, confessing that sin, repenting, and asking that you would teach us what it is to be real, just to be honest about our lives, honest at church, honest about our private lives, our public lives, where that's appropriate, just real with those around us. And we pray that we wouldn't be fake, but that, Lord, here we would be appropriately authentic to the praise of your glory as people set free through the grace of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we respond, praying that the thoughts of our hearts and the meditation of our minds would all match up and be honoring to the Lord. Let's stand together and sing.
And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship.